Well, hello, everyone. I'm glad to be here. I hope you're glad to be here. It's always good to be here. This is your first time. Welcome. I uh, hope you feel welcomed. And uh, we're a church that's all about Jesus. Uh, so we sing about Jesus. You're going to hear me talk about Jesus. And we're a people that are called to follow Jesus, to look like Jesus. Because we're crazy people who believe that Jesus is alive, that he is with us. He's teaching us. He's guiding us. He's leading us. So what we've been doing is uh, looking at a stream of faith, okay? It's not a denomination. We're a church, Providence Community Church, that does not formally belong to a denomination. You don't have Providence Baptist Church, Providence Presbyterian Church, or even Providence Anabaptist Church. But what we've been doing is looking at this stream of faith from some guys and gals that lived like 500 years ago. And they lived a distinctly Christian kind of life in a culture that was really, well, Christian. Or at least it was in the way that society was structured and, and the way things looked. But it was a group of guys and gals who took the call to follow Jesus specifically. They took the call to follow Jesus to, to not just be something that they believe, but to actually work out in their lives. Because it's so easy for a lot of us to say, well, yeah, I believe in God. Great. 90% of Americans believe in God. But we learn from the Anabaptists, as we see tonight, that that's just not enough. Because you don't really know something or believe something unless it's working itself out in your life. And so that's what we're talking about. So we've got these convictions. We've got seven of them. And what I'm talking about with following Jesus is really the first one. That's the starting off point. That's what we learned from these guys and gals called Anabaptists that started this movement. They were committed to follow Jesus. Not just to know about Jesus, but to know him and follow him in this life. Then last week we said, well, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to surrender all of our life to say not just what Adam says, but what Jesus says, then that should change how we view and read our Bibles. So last week, our conviction, our, our theology, our things that tell us why we do what we do, last week's was we're Jesus-centered Bible readers. So week one, we're talking about following Jesus, and then last week, we're talking about being Jesus-centered Bible readers. We read the Bible not just to cherry-pick a bunch of stuff and call it good. We've got to look at it because we believe that Jesus reframed everything, that Jesus changed everything, and we've got to look and read everything through the lens of Jesus, and that's what we talked about last week. And hopefully, in your missional communities, you're still talking about it, Okay? This is not just something that has to happen up here on Saturday nights for a few minutes, me barking at you for 30, 40 minutes. Let's be real, it's not 30 minutes, sorry. It should happen that we talk about this stuff. But here's the deal. Even though our church is not really affiliated with a denomination, the way our church has grown up, the way our church has just found itself after 11 years, really, spoiler alert, surprise, you're really a part of this kind of Anabaptist church. So I hope each week as we look at these convictions, I hope each week as you talk in your communities about what this means for why we do what we do, I hope that you find that this really isn't revolutionary or earth-shattering. It's just, yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of what we've been up to really since I've been around Providence. I hope that's happening. And if, you're, and if you're struggling with this, keep talking, keep asking questions. We're going to, to, to keep on learning together what it looks like. And what we're learning is that we're called as a church to be distinct. We're called as a church to not just be distinct or separate, different from what the culture around us looks like. We're gonna find that we're also called to be on mission. We're a people who are called to be distinct. We're a people that's called to be on mission. And that's really what we're after in Conviction 3 tonight. And I've called it, we're a people called to be distinct. So let's look at these core convictions. Number three 
Here's the first part of it. Hopefully you've got a handout that has all seven of them. If you don't, um, get one next time, uh, and maybe we'll have more of them next time if you missed it. So here's the first part of this conviction. Western culture is slowly emerging from the, can we say this together? Christendom, Christendom, lovely, wonderful. The Christendom area, era, what? Let's say era together, because I can't. Christendom era. When church and state jointly presided over a society in which almost all were assumed to be Christian. So, what is this Christendom thing all about? And what does this have to do with that weird word that I just said, Anabaptist? So what we have is this idea of Christendom, the Christendom era. And in a book that we've been looking at called The Naked Anabaptist, no, there's no naked pictures of Anabaptists in it, sorry. It's a book that you can get on our uh, book table. It's a book that you can get. It's a short book. It's a good read. And it's from a guy that really collected and, and put down these convictions. And so what he's after when we talk about how our culture is coming out of the Christendom era, he's going to define the Christendom era as something that looks like this. It's a historical era from the fourth century, so that's the 300s, all the way up into the late 20th century. And what he means by this is the Christendom era is a stretch of history where, Christen, where the Christian uh, language, the Christian scriptures, the Christian values is what dominated the landscape, okay? If you go back and watch like medieval movies, you're always gonna see the priest. You're always gonna see the churches. And you're always going to see guys talking about God's will, whether they're going to war or whether they're trying to get the throne as a king or a queen. It's because for years, for centuries, hundreds of years, this idea of Christianity, or maybe you hear it in America, right, as the Judeo-Christian principles, okay? Our nation was founded as a Christian nation. This is something that's persisted for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so it's not just a historical era. It's this idea that because everyone was thinking this way and that way, that we're all kind of Christians, everyone was considered at least nominally Christian in the West. What nominally Christian means is, basically, I was born into a country that believes it is a Christian country, and just as I am a citizen of that country, so also I am a citizen of the Christian nation. So I was born in America. I am an American citizen. And if America is a Christian nation, and 90% of our people in this nation say they believe in God, then it follows that I would grow up in a country and in a part of the world where I happen to know the kind of buzzwords like, well, Jesus died for my sins. If you ask the guy on the street, what was Jesus all about? They would probably say, he died for my sins. Well, do you believe in Jesus? No, but he died for my sins. Well, do you believe in God? Sure, I believe in God. Well, who's God? Well, I'm God and you're God. We just, we've got enough to where we kind of know the right things to say, but our culture and our country is still, after all of these years, nominally, at least marginally, at least a little bit, hip to the whole Christian jibe. And that's because this has happened for centuries in the western part of the world. If you're in the eastern part of the world, maybe you're Hindu. Maybe all the symbols and all the stories are maybe Hindu if you're in India. Or maybe it's Buddhist if you're in China. Maybe that's the scene. When you go into the restaurant, you see these sort of statues and these sorts of things. Well, in the West, we've got in God we trust on our money, don't we? In England, you've still got the Church of England, which leads us to our other distinctives of what this Christendom, that word Christianity in, in the empire, it means that our civilization is shaped by the story, Jesus died for my sins, the language, well, I believe in God and God we trust, symbols, the cross, 
that you see on everybody's necks, whether they really wanted to take up their cross and follow Jesus or not, and rhythms of Christianity. That means this. Easter is still a big deal whether you go to church or not. You may buy some candy. And you may, you know, have a bunch of bunnies running around and do an Easter egg hunt. But this Christian holiday is still very much a part of our culture. Christmas, are you kidding me? Merry Christmas, the guy at Walmart tells you. Or happy holidays. And we should start a petition because we're a Christian nation and they need to say Christmas. This marked Christendom by a fusion of church and state. Now America is different, right? Because we have the separation of church and state, right? Well, from the fourth century and on and on and on before America, it was a collection, it was this collusion, it was this unsteady agreement where the church and state were actually kind of best buddies, holding hands. So when the nation went to war, the church blessed it, sanctioned it. The church was also at war. Whether or not that looks like Jesus or not, the church and state were fused. When money comes in, it comes in and it goes, not just as taxes, but part of that gets funneled to support the church. It's marked by a fusion of church and state. So even though America has that separation, what we hear in our era today as a Christian nation is that we have churches that find it their duty and their calling by God to change the government or to vote the right guy into office. So whether or not our Constitution says that we're separate, the church and state should be separate, the taxes are separate, really, we still have this idea, don't we, in our culture, shaped by this idea of Christendom, that the church should run the state. And a lot of people that aren't Christians who have grown up in Christendom get upset because they say, dude, no, the church should not run the state. And finally, it's this mindset about God's activity in the world. And what, I, and what I mean by that is, in our, in our country, in our culture, is that it is God's destiny that we expand from sea to shining sea, all you in 10th grade history. It's this idea that this empire, this Christendom, it's this way that's worked itself into our system. It's the air we breathe. It's the water in which we swim in. And it's just the, the culture and the way that shaped our world in the West for centuries, for hundreds and hundreds of years, until recently, until recently. And so you find a lot of people talking about how if you go to the guy on the street today, he might say, I believe in God. He might say he's heard of Jesus. But all of a sudden, there's, there's this cross-section and this pollination where all of a sudden, man, this whole Jesus thing may not be the dominant thing in our culture. That's certainly the case more and more in Europe. Certainly the case more and more even here in Canada. And it's this idea that really no longer can we actually say that Christendom, that this idea of the Christian empire actually holds sway. And so if we look back at this conviction that we're talking about, as we look at what it means to follow this stream of faith, follow these guys and gals who were called to be distinct from the society in which they lived, we see that Western culture, where we live, the air we breathe, is slowly dusting off and emerging from the haze of this Christendom era. I almost said area again. We're slowly emerging from this idea that everybody's a little bit Christian. And we find that this church and state time during this era where they jointly presided over society in which almost all were assumed to be Christian, we're finding that that's not so much the case anymore. But this was the case for centuries, and how did this whole thing start? What can we learn from the Anabaptist guys and gals who said, wait a minute, we don't want to be a part of this religious society. We don't want to be a part of this society in which everybody's assumed to be Christian. We feel like we're supposed to be distinct. We feel like the church of Jesus, we feel like the people of God shouldn't just look like every other Tom, Dick, and Jane that does this sort of thing like kill people or 
not forgive people or not bless the poor. We want to look like Jesus because all of a sudden the society in which we live, it says it's Christian. It says we're the God's on our side. But the Anabaptists were the first some 500 years ago to say, wait, 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 wait. Is this really the way this thing operates? So this Christendom era started because this guy named Constantine, and he was a Roman emperor. And we've got to understand that when Constantine, in 300 AD, comes into power in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was the empire that for the 300 years before that persecuted Christians. So the first 300 years of Christianity, okay? So our calendar, right? Even our calendar is marked by the Christian symbol and, and rhythm and all these things that we looked at. Even our church calendar starts when Jesus dies, is raised again, is ascended to the Father, he is the reigning Lord, and the church is born, and he split history in two, B.C. to A.D. This is this shockwave of Christendom. But for the first 300 years after Jesus has walked the earth, has talked about God's kingdom, and God's kingdom is the true kingdom, it's not like any of the other kingdoms of the world. After Jesus is going around teaching this and drawing people to himself to be distinct, to carry on this mission, for the first 300 years, Jesus' people, the church, were persecuted by the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire had their own state-authorized gods, their own state-approved places of worship. And so for the first 300 years, the letters we have in our Bible are letters written to communities of people who gather together in secret in living rooms and dining rooms, sharing meals together, praying together, lifting cups, not in honor of Caesar, the emperor of Rome, but lifting cups in honor of Jesus, the king or emperor of the whole world. And they lived in these living rooms. They lived committed to each other. And they did so at the cost of their very lives. Because Jesus was not the authorized God. Jesus and his church, when they gathered, was not an authorized, state-approved church. These were a people that were distinct, right? And these were people that couldn't, if they wanted to, vote a Jesus-loving guy into office. And for 300 years, they were not a people, the Christians, who had an army that could say, God is on our side, and we need to go do this because God is going to conquer. But all of that changed. All of that changed with a guy named Constantine. And he was an emperor of Rome who had the state gods and the state temples, but he was short on his luck in the middle of a series of battles. And legend goes around 312 AD, 312, 300 years after the Christians have been a distinct people meeting and worshiping Jesus, not the emperor, not the state gods. All of a sudden, the emperor Constantine has a vision, as legend goes, in which he saw a bright light, and he saw this bright light, and he saw a symbol, and he heard some words that said, with this symbol, you shall conquer. And so what he did in the midst of this battle, leading an army, is he said that every person in his army needs to take this symbol that he saw in the vision in 312 AD and they need to paint it on their shields, they need to paint it on their flags, and they want to see if this vision is legit. And the symbol that was shown to him in this vision was called the Kai Ro. And maybe you've seen it on some rock and roll tattoos with Christians. It's the P and the X. The X is the Greek letter chi or key, depending on who you talk to. And it's the first letter in the Greek word Christ. Anybody want to guess what the row is? It's the second letter. And it's that P, the capital P. And so the symbol was the first symbol, really, of the Christians. 
that were a distinct people. And Constantine, who had been persecuting the Christians, a distinct people, all of a sudden gets a vision, and it's the first two letters of the word Christ, and he paints it on every shield and every flag, and he says, Jesus must be telling me to kill and find victory. And for the first time in Christian history, the first time after 300 years, we have the emperor using the name of Jesus to make war. And what happens is, unfortunately, depending on who you ask, Constantine's army got victory. And so then what happens, because, hey man, this is a pretty rock and roll lucky rabbit's foot. A year later, uh, there's what's called the Edict of Milan. And it was an edict that went out that said, hey, Jesus is just all right with me. I'm Emperor Constantine, and therefore Jesus must now be all right with all of you. And within 70 years or so, this spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. Because of this vision, because of this empire, we have now, watch, what was a Roman revolution under the noses of the empire, these Christians gathering as a distinct people, we go from a Roman revolution right, to now this Roman institution. You like how I rhymed that? And this profoundly changed the face. And centuries later, centuries and centuries and centuries, we find where we are today. We find this uneasy mix of church and state. And so it finds its climax in the Middle Ages, okay? And that's where our buddies, the Anabaptists, are in the state-authorized Christian church, of watch, the Holy Roman Empire. My family, almost all of my family, are Roman Catholic. And so this movement of these people that were persecuted by Rome all of a sudden becomes the Church of Rome. And years and years later, in the 1500s, when Martin Luther, as we've talked about the last two weeks, has 95 issues with the Catholic Church, the Reformation happens, they want to say, wait, 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 wait. Let's go back to the basics and let's sort this out. So then we have our Anabaptist friends coming from a Roman Catholic background in a Roman Catholic country, in a Roman Catholic kind of empire in which all these people are assumed to be Christian. We have these Anabaptist guys that say, wait a minute. And the thing that they wanted to say, wait a minute, about was this. When the church and state are joined together, like I mentioned earlier, if I'm born into America, my two daughters are born in Dallas, they get a birth certificate, and they become American citizens. Well, it so happens in the 1500s, and persists to this day, when babies are born, they don't just get birth certificates, but they get, watch, baptized. Okay? I was baptized as a little baby in an Episcopal church, and I got a certificate about it, right? And so this is part of the way in which in the 1500s they said, look, this is your incorporation into the Christian empire. You don't just get a birth certificate for your state, you get a birth certificate for the church. And there was a guy named Simon Stumpf. Everybody say Stumpf. Stumpf. That's another name that somebody needs to name their little kid, Stumpf. It's pretty awesome. We call him Stumpfy. There's a guy named Simon Stumpf, and there's a guy named Wilhelm Rublin, and these were two Catholic priests. And this was around the time, as our three Anabaptist amigos we talked about a couple weeks ago, where they're starting to say, wait, 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 wait. Is it right to baptize these little babies into this society? Because really, is this society all that Christian? And Simon Stumpf and Wilhelm were rural priests in Switzerland. And what they started doing was say, now wait, these babies that are getting born in our families, these babies that are getting born in our congregations of the Catholic Church that was in the process of being reformed, process of being renewed, what we're going to do is actually keep the babies home from church that Sunday and not let them be baptized. And so then what happens is they begin to say, and beyond that, 
We don't like how when we pay our tithes, our 10%, that Old Testament concept, when we pay our tithes to church, a lot of that gets kind of funneled in and mysteriously wrapped into the city council. So Simon Stumpf and O. Wilhelm, these rural priests, begin to not only withhold their babies, but they begin to condemn this system in which the money that's supposed to be to support God's church and God's distinct people and God's distinct mission, they didn't like how it just got sort of filtered out here and there and into these places of state. So they began to act upon this. And this led to that baptism that we talked about with old blue coat in January of 1525, and you've then got this people who are trying to opt out, right? Trying to opt out of this society and say, we believe that baptism is the entry point into life with Jesus. And the eight-day-old baby does not have the wherewithal to make a decision about not only life with Jesus, but with when he's going to eat next or with when he's going to poop next. It just happens. I've got a three-month-old baby who doesn't make a decision about anything except I'm going to cry, poop, giggle, or sleep. And she doesn't make the right decisions all the time. I wish I could make her decisions for her. So these Anabaptists It was a revolutionary practice because since that time of Constantine, everybody was just part of the Christian empire. And so they begin to say, well, wait, wait, wait. Maybe baptism is about life with God and choosing to say, Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, you are Lord. And I think it's the distinction, like I said, these Anabaptists, what we can learn from them is that they come from a time where the baptism was like a birth certificate. And the Anabaptists, if I could put it in our terms, were saying, actually, we think life with Jesus is more like a driver's license, okay? That's what a guy named Scott McKnight says in his book back there called The Jesus Creed. And the Anabaptists were the first to really look at it and say, wait a minute, is life with Jesus and pledging our allegiance to Jesus, saying, Jesus, you are Lord, I am not. Jesus, you are Lord, the king is not. Jesus, you are Lord, the president is not. What that means is that's something that I choose. When Jesus calls us and says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. This is a decision that is made by someone who can actually make decisions. And they saw the places in the New Testament where Peter says, Jesus is the reigning Lord. And they say, great, what do we do? He says, repent, turn, and be baptized. They begin to read the scriptures anew for themselves like we talked about last week. And they begin to say, wait a minute. Is life with Jesus about just being born into something as an inheritance or a birthright? Or is life with Jesus something that is actually lived out? Are the people that are going to go to heaven, that are going to be in the kingdom, that are going to stand before Jesus, are the people that are there going to say, well, I don't know how I got here, dude. I was just born, and I lived my own way for my whole life, but I was baptized. This is a problem. And the Anabaptists begin to see that. And they see that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's not just because your parents loved you and sprinkled you. And if this is revolutionary today, to my family and other people I love, it was revolutionary then. Here's what Stuart Murray says also about this issue of baptism. This is in that book, The Naked Anabaptist. He says, baptizing infants in this time in history marked their incorporation into a Christian society. Rebaptizing them years later implied that they, watch, and the society into which they had been inducted were not truly Christian. What he means by that is these Anabaptists, that word Anabaptist means re-baptists, re-baptizers, or again baptizers. The Catholics and the Reformers, those who were still baptizing infants, called them re-baptizers. But they taught, as Murray continues on, baptism was reserved for those who could choose to follow Jesus and commit themselves to the community of the church. Something, as we talked about, an infant is not capable of doing. But they refused to regard this as re-baptism, 
claiming that infant baptism was actually no baptism at all. So the Anabaptists start baptizing people who can make the choice to drive or to operate the life with Jesus. And by 1525, later on, after they began baptizing thousands of adults, the city council, watch, the city council in Zurich, Switzerland, began to outlaw, made illegal, the practice of baptizing adults. So here's that tension of the church state, where all of a sudden they're saying, wait a minute, you're disregarding our citizens in the church. You're disregarding your citizenship within the empire of Christianity. And the Anabaptists stood up and said, no, wait a minute. This is what we think baptism is about. They've opted out, and for them and for us as a church today, we learned from these guys 500 years ago that we're called to separate ourselves from the so-called Christian culture and find that Jesus should be the one that dictates what that culture looks like. And it's very different than what our world tells us. So in just a minute, we're gonna finish out looking at the rest of the conviction. But today was a good time, I think, to talk about baptism because it has everything to do with our allegiance to Jesus. And that's what baptism is about. Let's watch a quick video that will help kind of maybe summarize some of this that I'm talking about so we don't get it lost in the history of all this. So let's watch a quick video and we'll finish our conviction. Baptism. What is baptism all about? Well, let's look at a typical life. Many of our lives look like this. I am the center of my life, and the different components that make up my life, family, job, school, friends, money, house, car, all revolve around me. It is my life, after all. Sometimes I bring the religion component into my life as well, and that revolves around me too. But the thing is, our relationship with Jesus was never meant to be just one piece of our lives. When we decide to follow Jesus, when we accept his invitation to become the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, Jesus invites us to bring our whole life into our relationship with him. To follow him, not just in one component of our life, but in everything. When we are truly following Jesus, things don't revolve around us anymore. Jesus becomes the center of our lives, our family, our job, our friends, our possessions. We are now part of something that's bigger than ourselves. So what does baptism have to do with all this? Baptism is a symbol of that decision to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. That decision to go from a me-centered life to a Christ-centered life. Baptism doesn't have any supernatural power. The water isn't holy. Baptism is simply a public proclamation of what has already taken place in our hearts. Dying to our old way of life and rising to a new life in Jesus Christ. That's what baptism means. That's what we celebrate. All right, I hope you like the little stick figure guy. So look. For the Anabaptists, the first in history, and for us as a church and the many other thousands who've come behind them, for us, baptism is that proclamation, okay? That baptism is a pledge of allegiance that we have said no to me and yes to Jesus. When we baptize people in this church in the past, we've said, do you renounce Satan and all his works? Do you renounce this life in which you've lived? And then it symbolized that you have died, but you've also been raised to new life. And all of this is about Jesus. And all of this is about creating a people that are pledging their allegiance to Jesus and saying, you are it. And that I don't care what society says, I don't care what society looks like, Jesus, I am taking all of this stuff and I'm bringing it to you. And I'm surrendering all of me to you. And this is what we believe is resoundingly clear in Jesus' teaching and call. We love people in other churches who baptize babies. This is just for us 
part of this stream in which we found ourselves in. This is for us what we see in the New Testament. But beyond that, as we look at this society, we learn from these people that are called to be distinct, okay? So the Anabaptists not only were marked because they were called the again baptizers, the rebaptizers, they would birth denominations like the Amish folk or the Mennonites or a number of denominations that are called like brethren churches. And they all maybe look different than you or I. But they've taken this idea to be distinct. And a lot of times, sad to say, what started out as these people that were distinct and meeting in homes, baptizing adults, just like that first church for the first 300 years, a lot of these people have been too distinct, too removed from society. So we need to learn now as we emerge from this society that no longer looks and acts and has the cross on every shield or gun or whatever, we need to learn from our Anabaptist friends how to be distinct, but also on mission. So let's look at the last half of this conviction. So for Christendom, whatever its positive contributions on values and institutions, Christendom seriously distorted the gospel Christendom marginalized Jesus, and it has now left the churches ill-equipped for mission in a post-Christian culture. What this looks like is this. If you are a part of a system that says God has demanded that I take over this great land of ours called America, and I will do that even at the expense of displacing Native Americans, that is not the right way to spread the good news that Jesus is king. That looks a lot like the worldly kingdoms. So all of a sudden, you start to act and function like all the other empires of the world, but you just paint a cross on it. You distort the message, the good news. You marginalize Jesus when he says things like, bless the poor, bless those who persecute you, love your enemy as yourself. It's hard to love your enemy when you want their land or their oil. It's hard to love your enemy and bless those who persecute you when you both are holding AK-47s, isn't it? But it's a lot easier when you put Jesus way out over here. Then you can begin to just keep on, keeping on, because God is on our side. But when you begin to operate like an empire, your mission begins to look like empire. And you begin to go to a lot of these islands and these things. Christendom is responsible for going and baptizing and christening the natives and there are edicts throughout in all different sorts of churches in which if the uh, the heathen tribes that they would go to if they refuse to be baptized well that means they're going to hell so we may as well just send them there quick anyway and they would kill them there are documents in the christian church in the christian mission in which if baptism was refused then they would be killed if you're not baptized, we're not going to kill you, okay? But this is how, all of a sudden, this Christian empire can marginalize Jesus, distort the gospel, and leave us ill-equipped for mission. So, as we reflect on this, we are committed to learning from the experience and perspectives of movements such as Anabaptism, these men like Simon Stumpf and Wilhelm and the other guys we've talked about the last several weeks, that rejected standard Christendom assumptions and pursued alternative ways of thinking and behaving. So let's pull back and let's look at those three byproducts of this era. And it leads us to three questions for us today. You still with me? So here's what was highlighted in that last slide on the conviction. Christendom has distorted the gospel. So that leads us to the question then, what is the gospel? Well, it's marginalized Jesus. Well, now as we move and follow Jesus outside of this, how do we then bring Jesus to the center? Well, Christendom has left us ill-equipped for mission. Okay, so how do we live on mission? And how do we do all of this, looking like Jesus, following Jesus, seeking to learn how to look like the distinct people we're called to be and to live on mission? I want to keep this slide up because we're going to answer these questions. Because this is how the Anabaptist conviction and the Anabaptist story influences our church today in Texas in 2014. 
and how we believe the gospel belong to one another and bless our church and world. Let's turn with our last few minutes to Matthew chapter 28. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start looking for answers to these questions. What is the gospel? How do we bring Jesus to the center? And how do we live on mission? We're going to find answers for our church in the words of Jesus and in this scene we find in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 17. This should be review for those of us who have been around church like this one, trying to be distinct and follow Jesus. And our first question that we deal with, if we're in a culture that has distorted the gospel in which 90% of folks say they believe in God, in which many of the people that you will meet have some working knowledge of what Jesus is up to, how do we define the gospel? And how does this influence Jesus at the center in our mission? Okay? Let's look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So Jesus has been crucified, and now Jesus has been raised, and he wants to see his 11 buddies. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I want to stop right there. Jesus was crucified. You heard me say that? Jesus was raised. Did you hear me say that? Because we hear that a lot in Christendom era, don't we? Well, let me tell you. When the 11 disciples get there, the people who have walked with Jesus, learned from Jesus, followed Jesus, when they see Jesus, who had been murdered, tortured on a Roman cross, some worshiped and some doubted. Let me tell you this. Jesus still called those who doubted. He called all 11 of them, all right? So maybe what you need to hear is not this business about distinct and mission. Maybe you're one of those 11 or 150 who are doubting. Well, let me tell you, Jesus still calls you. Okay? This is the risen Jesus on a mountain in Galilee. And some of your friends are bowing at his feet, worshiping the risen Lord who had talked about God's kingdom. And some doubt it. Jesus still calls us. And these are the people that he called to himself to learn the Jesus revolution, the Jesus life. And they were called, just like God's people throughout history, to be a people that were distinct, that looked like Jesus in a world that didn't look anything like him. They were called, they were set apart. And he calls them to himself. And he says in verse 18, he came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But Jesus, we just saw you get crucified and laid in a tomb with a Roman stamp on it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. And so what do we learn about the gospel? What do we learn about this business of authority, about this business of Jesus. He's called a people that are distinct, and he's telling them that now all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You think that Rome has authority to tell you who you should be and what you should do and what you should pay, but all authority on heaven and earth has now been given to me. Death had authority over every human being in history, but now all authority has been given to me. My father has raised me from the dead. And he'll tell him, I've got the keys to the kingdom. I've got the keys to death in Hades. No longer does this authority over us if you are in me. And so the gospel is this, that God's king Jesus that he sent through God's people Israel, a people that Jesus has called and now renewed and is having it all around him, he says, all authority has been given to me. And the gospel, which is a word that means good news, is this. Let's look at the next slide. The good news 
that Jesus is the reigning Lord of heaven and earth. Is that what he just said? Is that what Jesus just said? Is that good news or is that bad news? Is that advice or is that an announcement? The good news that Jesus is the reigning Lord of heaven and earth and all people are called to submit to his gracious rule. All authority has been given to a king and a king has a king dumb. But this kingdom that Jesus calls us to is the kingdom that looks just like it did when he was walking the earth. It's a kingdom that didn't use force. It's a kingdom that didn't use a sword. And it's a kingdom that called the wrong kinds of people. When he announced his kingdom, he said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the ones who are downtrodden. And then he doesn't just say that, he shows us that now the prostitute and thief and sinner are welcomed into God's domain. You don't have to pay taxes, you have to pay your life. But he is no dictator. He is a gentle, humble king that paid his life on the cross. And we symbolize that by saying, I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to bury my old self in the ground. And just like you, Jesus, who were raised to new life, now I'm going to find my new life in you. The good news is not that Jesus just died for your sins though he did do that. The good news is that he has broken all the other pretend rulers in your life. The good news is that this is all about Jesus, that he has kicked open the doors and he is welcoming you and you and you and you and you and you and you. And he's not gonna hold you at gunpoint. All authority has been given to him. And he simply asked us to give him the authority of our life. And this has everything to do with a pledging of our allegiance, a turning to Jesus and away from ourself. It has very little, if nothing, to do with the fact that you were sprinkled or the fact that your grandpappy was a preacher. It has everything to do with you right now and what you're doing with Jesus. It has everything to do right now if you've made a mess of your life and you think God doesn't love you, it has everything to do with the fact that Jesus, who has all authority, says, come to me. You who will worship me, you who will doubt, come to me. And if you stay with me, I promise you I will never leave you because you're going to need me for what I'm calling you to do. Verse 19 of Matthew 28. Because I have all authority, go. Well, Jesus, I just want to hang out here on the mountain with you, dude. Go and make disciples of all nations. The good news of Jesus' message is not that we're coming in and setting up bases and you better be baptized or die. As you go, announce to the nations who are persecuted, who are downtrodden, who are oppressed, that Jesus has authority and he has loosed the chains to where you can now live as a new citizen of his kingdom. And they're called to make disciples of all nations. And here's what we mean by disciples. The disciples were the ones that followed Jesus, that ate with Jesus, that farted around Jesus. Are you still listening? The disciples are the ones who saw the Jesus life. And when he calls the 11 and sends the 11, what he is going to show them and instruct them and empower them to do is to meet in dining rooms and meet in homes and meet along the path and show them the Jesus way. Yes, Peter will preach. Yes, there is a call to surrender to Jesus. But more than anything, God is after not the people who just say and do all the right things, like our culture may say. Well, I did say say and do, didn't I? 
Not just the people who believe all the right things for the checkmark boxes, but people who will go and follow in the way that Jesus walked. Because the world around us that we're called to reach, the neighbors around you we're called to reach, when they see you taking your trash out, when they see you mowing your yard and playing with your kids, they cannot see all the right church answers in your head. But they see the way you talk. They see the way you walk. And we live in such a way as we go with Jesus to where we can tell them Jesus is good and Jesus calls me to follow him and Jesus is alive and Jesus can still heal. And we begin to talk and we begin to act and we begin to invite our neighbors and our families into our homes and into our lives And we announce to them the good news that Jesus is king. And if you've made a terrible mess of your own life as you've been king, let me tell you something. There's somebody that can help. And it has nothing to do with making more people and just handing them a birth certificate. It has everything to do with making more and more people who are pledging allegiance, who are joining Jesus' kingdom, and finding what it looks like to drive the car, right? To operate in this world and to operate in this life because what the world needs is not more smart know-it-all people that are gonna tell the government and tell everybody what's what and picket this and picket that. What the world needs is more people to come and wash some dang feet. And so this is what we're called to do. And he says then, make disciples of all nations, okay? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. How do we make disciples? We baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and we teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. We can teach babies, and we can baptize babies, but can we teach babies to obey everything Jesus has commanded us? If we stop at birth certificates, if we stop with the society, we miss what Jesus is up to, and we have a bunch of people in our church that we're just pushing around in strollers. And Jesus calls us to go into all nations, even the hard ones, and to bring people through the waters into the allegiance of King Jesus, and we teach them. And here's what I mean. It's one thing to teach somebody to pray for those who persecute you. It's one thing to say, hey, that person at work who is making life hell for you, you need to pray for them. That family member who you've not talked to in 20 years, you need to pray for them. That's great. And they can log that in their brain. And then we can come along and say, let's pray for that coworker. Let's pray for that family member. This is how disciples are made, not just little believers, not just little converts, because our neighbors can't see our beliefs. Our neighbors can see how we follow the living Jesus. So what is the gospel? We talked about that good news. How then do we bring Jesus to the center? We make followers, we make disciples. That was our second question. And our third question we talked about, how do we live on mission? Well, we just read it. We're baptizing and we're teaching. We're baptizing and we're teaching. But that's not all. What does Jesus say as he closes this book? Surely I am with you always. Hey, is Jesus with you always? We can shake our heads, right? Does Jesus call you when you doubt? Is Jesus near you when you doubt? Is Jesus with you always? These are one of those things where we can lean into him and say, I don't know that I just feel good about all this, but I'm gonna lean into you and I'm gonna trust you that you are with me always. 
And as we go on mission, we don't have to go on our own because he's with us to the very end of the age. Jesus called his disciples and he sent his disciples. Are we a people who have been called to be separate from the religious culture and the religious way of doing things that looks way too much like America and all these other worldly kingdoms that are just shades of good, shades of bad. But disciples are people, not nations. Nations are people. And when we call to make disciples of nations, we do that the Jesus way, baptizing and teaching, baptizing and teaching, baptizing and teaching. But are we a distinct people who have opted out of all that race we a distinct people, distinct enough that your neighbors can see something different. You've probably heard that famous quote, you know, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Let me tell you, an announcement and news are words. <laughs> at some point, you're going to have to live distinctly, but at some point, you're going to have to say, please turn to Jesus. Are we living on mission, church? You know what the question that has been burning in my heart and mind for months is? How missional are our communities? We call them missional communities. And we talk about in our new members class about how we're missionary teams and we're called to bless. How missional are our communities? This is something that we are going to address, that we have to address that we have to look at ourselves and wonder, how are we living on mission? How are we going, baptizing and teaching? How are we doing? Or are we just wanting to hang out on the mountain with Jesus? As people who worship and people who doubt. But whatever the case, we go knowing that Jesus is with us and we go knowing that we're with each other. And that's what we learn from our Anabaptist folks. We're called to be a people that are distinct. We're called to be a people on mission. We can't just hold up. We've got to go. We've got to follow. We've got to look at our Bibles. This is a weird conviction. This is a conviction that talks about really a lot of where we're at today. So thank you for sticking with it. But here's what we've got to do. We've got to take seriously Jesus' call. We've got to take seriously the idea that we are his and that he can do for us and with us whatever he wants because he's our king. If that means going to some hard, stinking places with a bunch of little kids like someone in our church will do, we need to say, remember, he's with you. And when people lose their family members like they have this weekend, we need to say, remember, he's with you. And when we're called on our living rooms, when people and marriages and things are in the clutches and grips of Satan, we have to remember that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to our King Jesus, and we're with him. And this is everything we have to do together. Your life with Jesus cannot exist for 45 minutes on a Saturday night because of some yahoo like me saying a bunch of stuff. It can't just exist because of the six songs that we sing that sing and teach about Jesus. It's got to be the community project of being a people together with Jesus in the authority of Jesus, following Jesus. So that's what we're after. Good news is we're going to have a membership class very soon. A lot of this is dependent on when our building and things go, but I think there are people that want to officially be on board. Let me tell you, you're on board But we're going to talk about these things and we're going to give opportunities for people to be baptized if they've not been baptized. If we're Anabaptists, maybe there's a re-baptized thing that you needed to get done. I was baptized when I made my decision uh, long after I got the certificate, my birth certificate. I made a choice when I had all I could in my little 10-year-old brain to love Jesus. I made that choice and I made that proclamation. And since then, I've been learning how to drive. So we want to invite you, talk to Bud, talk to Pastor Bud and Drew, and talk to me, and we'll see about that. If that's something, since we talked about baptism, that's something that we'd like to, to make happen sooner than later, okay? We didn't talk about that, but ain't nothing wrong with baptizing some folks. Okay, I'm going to pray, 
Then we're gonna make our pledge of allegiance to those who have followed Jesus or are following Jesus, who are loving Jesus. You're invited to come together as we come to the table. Remember that through Christ's death, we have died to ourselves. Through the shedding of his blood, we are forgiven and washed. He gave us not only the call to baptize, but he gave us a meal to remember him. And that's what we're gonna do as we sing tonight. We're gonna go out taking him with us onto mission as we go from this place, okay? I love y'all. Thank you for loving me. And let's go and bless the world, okay? Before we do that, let's pray, let's sing, and let's eat. Jesus, we're grateful for the faithful men and women throughout the centuries who have tried with all they have to follow you. They don't do it perfectly, just like we don't do it perfectly. We don't have all the right answers, just like they didn't have all the right answers. We're just trying to learn from people who've gone before. We're trying to make the Jesus story and the Jesus way relevant to a culture who is so numb to it because they see it on all the after-school specials on the Hallmark Channel. They see all the crummy music and movies, and they think they know. But Lord, I know that there are people in our culture who are confused about you, And there are people in our neighborhoods who are confused about you. And there are people that you're bringing to us that are confused about you. And I pray that we would be a people who model the life of Jesus and call others to come alongside us and do it also. So give us strength because you're with us. Give us strength because you are strong and all authority is yours. Give us strength in the name of Jesus to boldly, radically follow you to love you when we doubt to love you when we don't have it all figured out and to love you when we can't love ourselves pray that you would continue to liberate us and break the chains of sin and death and pray that we would follow you our king our shepherd our lord amen